Heavenly Father, it is with much, much humility, Lord, that I come before you this morning, grateful for your word and grateful for the opportunity to share it. Lord, I pray that as I open your word and as I share the message that you have given me to share with this group of people, that it will impact those that you have in exactly the way you want it to do. So, Lord, help me not to worry about my delivery. Help me, though, Lord, to deliver the message that you would have your people to hear in a way that will touch hearts. I thank you for the gift of your word, Lord, and I pray that you will help me to handle it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Why? As a parent, is that not your favorite question? I remember when my children were younger, and sometimes still today, they would ask me that question. And you know what I thought every time they did? What a brilliant question. I'm happy to give you the reasoning. Any other parent do that same thing? Yes, lie. That's exactly what that is. Thank you, Travis, for calling a lie when you see it. We're going to talk about more of that later. Right? It is the most single frustrating question I ever heard as a parent. And it's the single most frustrating question I've ever heard as a boss. But it's also the single most important question that we need to answer. When you're in a position of authority, you need to tell people the why. Why? Because why equals motivation. When we know why we're doing something, we're much more prone to eagerly do it. No? All right, I'm sorry, I'm going to try to keep this thing on. All right, so why is critical. But so is how. Right? Do everybody ever tell you to do something and you're like, uh, okay, how do I do it? Right? And they're like, I'm sure you'll figure it out. Go ahead. Right? That's a lot of license, isn't it? And that can be a lot of fun to have, but it typically doesn't work out well. Right? So we need to know the why and we need to know the how. And we're going to see a lot of what's too. Anybody know what a what is? A what's a command? What is something I want you to do? So if I give you a what, I'm telling you something I want you to do. That's the what. But if I give you the what without the why or the how, it might be a bit challenging for you to get it done, right? You know what God gives us in his word? A whole lot of what, right? There's a ton of what in the word of God. But you know what else there is? A lot of why and a lot of how, right? So today, as I go over the what's, I'm also going to try to focus on the how's. So let's read our passage together. For Colossians 3, verses 12 to 17 says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. There's a lot there, isn't it? So let's dig into it. 
This morning, I'm going to talk to you about the four what's that we are able to do as believers and point out the why and the how of each. What number one? Celebrate humbly. What number two? Treat one another well. What number three? Worship well together. And what number four? Glorify God together. So let's start with what number one? Celebrate humbly. Why should we celebrate? Let's look at verse 12 for the reason there. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Right there, you could teach a whole sermon if you were much more gifted than I am. We are to celebrate because we are chosen by God. Did everybody just hear what I just said? Does everybody understand the significance of what I just said? I don't think some of you do, because I'm getting some looks like, oh, far, explain it to me further, right? You are chosen by God. If you are sitting in this room and you are trusting in Christ Jesus alone for your salvation, you have been chosen by God. He has made you His own. And you know what you did to earn it? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In His grace, He has chosen you. I wish I could say that in a way that you guys would all really, really grab a hold of it. Right? Does anybody think that you'd be pretty lucky if you won the, won the lottery and you won, say, $50 million? It would change your life, right? Guys, do you understand what it means that I've just told you that God has chosen you? There are a lot of people out there that He hasn't chosen. You couldn't begin to compare winning some silly lottery to what God has done for you in choosing you. And that's why we should celebrate. We also should celebrate a specific way, right? We should celebrate humbly. Because not only has God chosen you, but He has called you what? Holy and beloved. That is how God sees you. When we celebrate, and we celebrate humbly, it demonstrates that we understand how it is that we came to be chosen by God. It wasn't based on anything we could do or anything we did. I'm sorry, this thing keeps falling off. And we certainly weren't chosen to feel some need God had, right? That we were the only things that could feel it, right? We all know God, Christ, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, they were all content, right? They were in a perfect heaven together. They were perfectly content. They don't need us. We need them, right? And we need to understand that. And it's because God is gracious and because He's merciful and because He is forgiven or forgiving that He chose us. It's because Jesus was willing to leave that perfect heaven where He was in perfectly content with the Father and the Holy Spirit to come down to earth and be the perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins that we could not atone for. That's why we need to do this humbly. That's why we need to celebrate humbly. There's a lot to celebrate. You know why else we need to celebrate humbly? 
because God made provision for you and for me and for all of us when he sent that person into our lives that shared the gospel with us. Do you realize how close you came to dying in your sins? If God had not sent that saint to you to share the gospel with you, and if God had not sent his Holy Spirit to prepare your heart to hear that gospel, guess where you'd be right now? You'd be preparing to stand before a God without the atonement that Christ has made for your sins. If he had not sent his messenger to share the gospel with you, you would not be called chosen, holy, or beloved. But you are. We should celebrate because God has saved us, and we should celebrate humbly because our humility about our salvation brings God the glory. And guess what that is? That's a why. Remember I told you, we're going to point out the hows and the whys. And you've got to keep in mind, this message was given to a body of believers. It was a church, just like the one meeting in this room right here today. That's who we're talking about. When I talk about the things we're to do today, these what's, we're talking about among ourselves, our body here, right? And not only our body here, but by extension, the, the universal church of God, right? Wherever there are true believers, that's who we're talking about here. So what does it mean that God has called us his chosen ones? You and I, right? He has called his chosen ones holy. What does that mean? What does that mean for us? R.C. Sproul defines it. He says, the word holy calls attention to his, being God's, absolute purity. So when God sees us, he sees you and I, his chosen ones, is absolutely pure. Does anybody else in this room see yourself as absolutely pure? I don't, right? And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you do, because somebody will probably turn around and call you a liar, right? We are not absolutely pure as we see ourselves, right? Because we know who we are. We know that we walk around in this bag of flesh, and we know what we've done. And when you know that about yourself, it's hard to consider yourself absolutely pure. But guess what? Our passage clearly shows that God calls us holy. Therefore, guess what? We are. We are absolutely pure in the eyes of our God. Something to celebrate maybe? Right? And that's another why we should do what we're called to do here coming up. What about beloved? What does it mean that he calls us beloved? The Greek word translated as beloved indicates dearly loved, highly esteemed, and favorite. My kids like to ask me who's, who's, their fa- who's my favorite of them. I don't have one. God does. <laughs> the people in this room who are trusting in him for salvation, he considers you his favorite. Another reason to celebrate, right? Another why, another motivation to celebrate who we are. It means that the never-ending, unconditional, unlimited love of God is not only lavished on His only Son, it's lavished on you and I, His chosen ones, who He calls holy and beloved. And it's only because of what Christ has done for us. Believers, are you ready for some really great news? These facts I've just talked about, the fact that you are chosen, the fact that you are holy, and the fact that you are beloved... They are fixed and immutable. 
That means they can't be changed. You guys are still sitting down. (laughs) You're amazing, right? I'm obviously not doing this as well as I need to be. It is incredible to me, and it gives me so much joy to read these words. When I have a chance to think about who it is, and I had a lot of time to think about this over the last few weeks, it's exciting. It makes me want to celebrate, and I think it does for each of you too. So let's continue reading our scripture together. Put on, then, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. This section of Scripture focuses on the second what we are called to do. What, number two, treat one another well. Now, this is the long one, right? So don't think when I'm done here, and I still have two more, that it's going to be a super long day. This is the big one, right? So I've been so carried away. I was so carried away when I was working on this sermon about the love God has shown us by making us his own, by calling us his chosen, by calling us holy and calling us beloved, that I almost forgot he gave us some direction here, right? He's actually given us some what's to do, some things to accomplish, right? But he's also going to provide us the why and the how. And I'm going to help point those out as we go along, right? So he begins this whole passage with the words, put on then, right? So that's a command. He's telling us to do something. He wants us to put something on. But before we focus on what it is that we are to put on, I want us to notice the word then. That little word means a lot here. The word then points to the how and the why. So what is it that the word then is pointing to? It's pointing back. It's pointing back in that same passage to where God calls us chosen, holy, and beloved. That's why we are to do this. There's the why, right? When he uses the word then, he's telling us why we should do this, right? Why we should be motivated to do what he's fixing to call us to do. Now, to put on a virtue takes effort, right? Some of these virtues we're about to talk about can be difficult, right? But because you realize that he's calling us to exercise them with believers, with his chosen ones, it's worth the effort. We recognize that it's worth the effort it takes for us to put these on and to share them. To put something on isn't just to do it every now and then. To put on a virtue is to be characterized by it. To do it so frequently that it's what you are about. It's how you are recognized by people. Right? So it's not a let's fake it till I make it type thing. This is a true heart change. So the first virtue I want to talk about is compassionate hearts. Right? There's the what. It's the first one on the list. We're to put on compassionate hearts. So what does compassion mean? Compassion is a desire to meet the needs of others even when it may not be expedient or beneficial for us. It can be exhausting to be compassionate. It may mean that you're right in the middle of doing something, maybe watching a cowboy game or something really exciting like that, and somebody calls and says, I need your help. A compassionate heart says, what can I do for you? And gets up and goes. Right? A compassionate heart, when that call comes at 2 o'clock in the morning from a brother or a sister that says, I'm struggling. 
I need help. A compassionate heart is the one that you put on and you go and you be with them, right? That's what a compassionate heart looks like. So if you were here earlier in Sunday school, I believe it was, you would have heard Ben, we're going through this book, um, True Community by Jerry Bridgers. He was talking about what it means to have a compassionate heart in essence. He was talking about what it means to meet the needs of others. Right? And so how do we go about meeting the needs of others? That process doesn't start with the person meeting the need. That, pers- that process starts with the person in need. If you have a need, it is on you. It's imperative on you to be willing to be open and trusting enough to reach out to your brothers or sisters and share that need with them. Right? If we don't know your need, as Ben said, we can't meet it. And that's a problem, right? Why do we want to meet one another's needs, right? We want to meet one another's needs and we want to share our needs because when we fail to share our needs with others, we prevent them from having the blessing of being used by God to help meet those needs, right? So that's a why. That's why we want to ask for help. And when we, forget, when we fail to let people know about our needs, you know what else we do? We miss the opportunity to see God provide for those needs. That's another why. God stands ready to meet your needs. Sometimes, most of the time, he's not going to do it supernaturally. He's going to do it through the brothers and sisters in this room and around the world. That's why you have to make your need known. And then the, the process concludes when we, who have been notified of a need, come together, help meet that need, meet the, brothers, the, the need of our brother or sister. And what does that do? It helps build them up, and it glorifies God. And those are the whys, right? So now you know what you're to do, and you know why you're supposed to do it. So let's move on to kindness. Kindness is one of those words that our society has misused and abused incredibly, right? It is horrendous what they call kindness today. What is kindness today? Kindness means don't tell somebody what they're doing is wrong, right? What it, you just do you, right? I've heard that phrase so many times it makes me sick to my stomach. You do you. I've used it so many times it makes me sick to my stomach. And you know when I've used it? When I don't care about the person I'm talking to, right? Kindness requires us to be honest with people. That is, the, this whole, you know, whatever makes you happy is not the Christian definition of kindness, right? The kindness that we're talking about is selfless, compassion, merciful, but it's not licentious. So what enables us to extend this kind of kindness to one another? In an article on the subject, Pastor Stephen Whitmer gives us the how. Right? He tells us how it is that we can be kind. It's not our nature to be kind necessarily, is it? Especially before Christ has changed your life. Right? Because kindness requires you to be open and honest and willing to go through trials with other people in order to be kind to them. And what Stephen Whitmer says is true kindness is spirit-produced. It is a supernaturally gener- generous orientation of our hearts toward other people even when they don't deserve it and don't love us in return. Is that something you think you can do without the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what comes natural to any of us. 
right? But that is typically the pleasant kind of kindness that we all enjoy being on the receiving end of. But there's also another type of kindness. And it may not seem pleasant to the person receiving it. And in fact, to the one receiving it, it may feel like an attack. However, we need to be open to kindness even when it makes us uncomfortable. And we have to be willing to share kindness with others even when it makes us uncomfortable. It's a whole lot easier to tell somebody, you do you, than it is to stand up and risk that relationship and call them honestly to make the changes they need to make. Sometimes kindness comes as a rebuke. How do we receive it? God gave us another how, right? We're to look at the motivation of the heart of the person sharing their concern with us. And we can see, as David said in Psalm 141.5, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. When you really love someone, you cannot condone them sinning as though that sin were not significant in the name of kindness. When you really love someone, you must be willing to step in when you see them sinning with the goal of helping them understand the significance of the sin, how it offends God. There's another why for you. That's why we're called to put on kindness. When practiced in keeping with the word of God, kindness, even a rebuke, glorifies God and strengthens one another. Remember who we're talking about here, right? We're talking about God's chosen ones. We're talking about our brothers and sisters sitting in this room who have accepted Christ. And you know what? They're worth the risk. They're worth the effort it takes to put on a compassionate heart and the risk it takes to be kind sometimes, even when it's difficult. The third virtue, humility. In adapting a definition of humility from Romans 12.3, Randy Newman says that humility is not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, but with sober judgment, according to what God says in His Word. And I think this definition is really good because it provides a balance, right? We are not to look at ourselves as greater than we should, but we're also not to look at ourselves as lower than we should. As believers, we are not just sinners or worms or empty vessels. We are children of God, chosen, holy, and beloved. And it's important that we not forget that because that's who God said we are. And I'm going to drive that point home with you guys all morning, right? So get ready for it. Recognizing who we are, chosen, holy, and beloved, that's the why, that's why this is happening, only because of what God has done for us, that's the how, builds our sense of humility. When you recognize who you are and how you came to be there, it strengthens your humility and allows us to treat one another with humility. Our next virtue is meekness. Meekness is not a virtue that our society encourages. Right? As, as Bill said this morning, we are encouraged to grab our bootstraps and pull ourselves up and get out there and get it done, right? And the world sees a meek person as somebody who has absolutely no control over their circumstances. They're just pushed along. They can be bullied along by everything. They have no control, and that's a meek person. 
But that is not the believer's definition of meekness. Meekness for a believer is the Holy Spirit-granted ability to trust God. It is a trust that we have in God that allows us to deal with whatever the circumstances might be. It is our willingness to put our faith in Him knowing that His will will be done and our submission to His will in all things that allows us to be meek. That sounds to me like a good place to find yourself. I would say the world is wrong in their definition. Meekness allows us to say, it is well with my soul. I love that song. It is well with my soul even when things are extremely difficult. The quiet confidence that we have in God's sovereignty, there's your how, allows us to live well together. And finally, patience. Patience implies suffering, enduring, or waiting as a self-imposed determination of the will and not because we are forced to do so. It's a reliance on God and acceptance of His will, there's your how, that with trust in His goodness, wisdom, and faithfulness, there's your why, that we are enabled to be patient. When we are patient with one another, we reflect the patience God has with each of us, and that allows us to give, to treat one another well, as we're called to do in this what. So in our, in our passage, we've gone over these five virtues that we're to put on, Paul is commanding us to put them all on. And all five of them work contrary to our sinful nature. They're not in our best interest or welfare sometimes, but they are in the best interest and welfare of the the body around us. And you know what? Putting others ahead of yourself, it's hard. But take heart. It is not beyond your ability to do these things. With the help of the Holy Spirit, there's your how, you can be characterized by these virtues. Now, I was listening to Theocast. It's a podcast. I don't know if you guys listen to it. It's Reformed Baptist um, podcast. It's a solid podcast. And they were talking about these virtues, right, and the value of them. One of the things they said that I wanted to share with you guys is that when we put on these virtues, we may have people among us who either don't necessarily agree with us on some of our theology, or uh, and it's an opportunity for us to create an environment where they can comfortably come to us with those questions. And that allows them the opportunity to grow. And I thought that was another fantastic wow, or why we need to put these virtues on. So I wanted to share that with you guys. So continuing on in our scripture in verse 13, we, we see that we are to bear with one another because Paul knows how imperfect we are. He knows that we're going to offend one another And he wants to make it clear how we are to respond, whether we are the offended or the offender. He says that when we have a complaint against one another, that we are to do what? Forgive each other. Easy, right? You do something against me, no problem. I forgive you. We get to move on together, right? Everything is great. Nope. Doesn't work like that, right? So the first thing I want to do is define forgiveness. According to Chris Braun, we should define forgiveness between ourselves and other people the way God defined it in forgiving us. God's forgiveness for Christians is the model he expects Christians 
to live out. That's pretty deep, right? We've just been told there's a model there. Go do it, right? That's what's expected. So let's take a look a little bit closer at that model. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul writes, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as as God in Christ forgave you. So we can see that forgiveness requires some tenderheartedness, doesn't it? Right? Forgiving takes action on our part. But we also have an example, and we have a why. And it's because God has forgiven us through Christ. And what did that forgiveness look like? We can read in Psalms, He removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. So there's your standard. That's how you go about forgiving somebody. It means that you put the offense away, right? When somebody comes, when you forgive somebody, you put the offense away. You don't hold it against them anymore, and you walk shoulder and shoulder with that person forward as members of God's family, right? That's what forgiveness is. Remember, we're talking about members of this family. We're talking about chosen ones. We're talking about God's holy and beloved. So there's our first reason to put on forgiveness, right? Who it is we're dealing with. Speaking for myself, forgiveness is hard. I struggle to forgive. I struggle to, for, to believe sometimes that the person I'm talking to is honest when they tell me they're sorry. I question whether or not their repentance is legitimate. It's something I don't think I would be capable of doing if I didn't have the why that we've been talking about. And the why is provided for us. Because in the next sentence, praise God, He tells us the why. As the Lord has forgiven you. That's the why. Right? We've been forgiven by God. Does anybody in this room believe that I could do anything worse to you than what we collectively, just by being, have done to God through our sin? It's absolutely impossible. There is nothing you could do to me. There is nothing I could do to you than it's worse than what we've done to God. And you know what? God has forgiven me for that. And because He has forgiven me, I must, it says must, forgive. The Lord, though His through His Word, also gives me the how I can forgive. When I read the Bible and I see how hopeless I was, my heart glorifies God for His forgiveness and allows me to forgive others. God also provides an example of how I'm to forgive in the way He forgave me. I'm to forgive as Christ forgave me. It means that I forgive when repentance is offered. I don't get to challenge the legitimacy of the repentance. When a brother or a sister comes to me and repents, I am to give them the benefit of the doubt that they mean what they say, that they've had a heart change. And then I am to lock arms with them and move forward together. I am to set that sin aside. I am not to allow it to impact our relationship moving forward. I can only offer forgiveness because I'm inspired to do so by the Holy Spirit. There's your how. 
because when I forgive, I am demonstrating his mercy to everyone who is involved in the situation, both believers and unbelievers alike. There's your why, right? I'm, people are going to see it. And that relieves the burden of your brother or sister and gives us hope for our relationship. Another why. And above all, forgiving brings glory to God. The ultimate why, right? Why do we live? To bring glory to God. So if you are the person who has committed the offense, there's some things you need to know, right? As the offended, I know that I need to forgive you. As the offender, you need to know that you can't just act like nothing happened, right? Because we're friends or because we're brothers and sisters in this church. If you offend me, you can't just act like, oh, well, right? It'll go away. You can't just blow it off. That's not how it works. In the Bible, you will not see forgiveness granted without repentance being offered, right? Without coming to the person you have offended and repenting of of your sin against them, you're not going to receive forgiveness. So if you know or believe that it's likely that you've offended a fellow believer, it is your responsibility to remove that potential stumbling block from your brother and sister. There's your why. And go to them humbly with repentance in your heart and ask for their forgiveness. Simple, right? I know from experience that is not, right? It's not only difficult, it's very difficult. Why? Because it breaks my pride, right? It causes me to humble myself, to look at what it is that I've done realistically, to recognize how I have offended someone, to understand the significance of the offense that I have put in front of that person, and then to go to them and not only tell them that I'm sorry, but then double down by asking them to forgive me. And you know what? That's hard to do. But it's not optional. We are commanded to do that. Now, if you're the person who's been offended and the brother or sister who has offended you has not come to you yet to apologize and to seek your forgiveness, maybe it's because they don't know they have offended you. Don't assume that they know you're offended. If you have something against your brother or sister, don't delay. Don't say, I am not talking to that person again until they come apologize to me. They may not know why. (laughs) They may not know they've offended you. If you have something against them, what are you instructed in the Bible to do? If you're at the altar of God, and you realize your brother or sister has got something against you, what are you supposed to do? Leave your sacrifice and go make it right. If someone has offended you and they have not repented of it, go to them. Talk to them about it. Give them the opportunity to apologize. When we fail to do that, when we hold on to that bitterness or that anger or whatever that is, that offense is, you know what you do? You open your, the heart of your door to bitterness and to anger and that's going to grow and fester. And you know what that's going to do to your witness, to those around you? It's going to harm it. There's another why. 
We don't want to be the reason that unbelievers mock God because we preach one thing and we practice an entirely different one. So it's quite a list of what's that we've been addressing so far. And we've seen a number of hows and we've seen a number of whys to help us achieve them. But the most important of the hows and the whys is what we're about to read next. So let's look at verse 14 and 15 together. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. The golden string the Lord uses to tie all these virtues together in perfect love, in perfect harmony, is love. Paul tells us that without love, we, are absolute, we have absolutely nothing. Love is the how and the why. It is love that enables us to serve one another as we are called to do in this passage. He also instructs us to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts. Now the peace Paul is referring to is the calling that we've all received and through which we've all been called into one body. This room and believers around the world. Right? You may have dear friends who are, church, who are believers that don't attend this church. You know what? They are God's chosen, holy, and beloved. And they are to be treated the same way. We are to be thankful for being a part, not only of this local body, but of that universal body of believers. This isn't something that we earned. right? We acknowledge that it is only by the gracious calling of God that we have been made a part of this community. And there's one of your hows. So, as I mentioned earlier, if you've been joining us for growth class in the mornings, you know we're going through Jerry Bridges' book. And the point of that book parallels our passage here. It's how do we are to live together as a body. Speaking of the church in Acts, and I believe it applies to all true churches, Bridges says, the Christians were not devoting themselves to social activities, but to a relationship. As a body, we share a special relationship. That relationship consisted of sharing together the very life of God through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There's your how. They understood that they had entered this relationship by faith in Jesus Christ, not by joining an organization. Not everybody who comes to church every Sunday has been saved. They are not part of the relationship I'm talking about here. This relationship is for us as believers, God's chosen ones. And as members of one body, you and I share a special relationship, one created by God and His sovereignty and by His grace and mercy. And it's a relationship that we should work to nourish and grow with hearts that are grateful for one another. I wonder if we do that all the time. But I'm asking you to check yourself here. If we do so, we will live well together. And that will make it possible for us to do the third what. Now, like I said, the next two are shorter. So we're going to get through them before noon. Reading verse 16 together. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So the first command there, the one which makes all the others possible, is to let the Word of God dwell in you richly. What does that look like? 
It begins with spending time in the word. I'm always grateful when I have a chance to preach because you know what? I spend more time in the word then than I might normally do, right? I've got to prioritize sometimes and sometimes I don't always have time to really dig in, right? Sometimes I just listen or I read quickly, but when you dwell, let the word dwell in you richly, you're digging in, right? You're really reading it, stopping, thinking, meditating on it, right? This is your focus and it's undistracted. And when that happens, when you read the Bible, you read the words that proclaim what Jesus has done for you. When you read the words that glorify Christ Jesus and demonstrate his incredible grace, mercy, and love, it impacts you at a super deep level. It makes you want to preserve those precious words in your memory. It makes you want to celebrate the truths of Scripture with other believers. And it causes you to want to sing the praises of God. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. That is letting the Word dwell in you richly. And now what are we supposed to do with it? Right? What do we do with the Word of God? Everything. Right? We know the Word of God is absolutely sufficient. It is perfect for teaching, for admonishing one another. And Paul tells us right here, that's what we are to use to admonish one another. If you think you're brilliant, but you're not sharing the word with them, or you're not sharing from the gospel or from the word of God, the advice you're sharing has nothing to do with that, take your brilliance somewhere else. Right? We need to use the word of God when we're interacting with one another. Sometimes you may be called on to counsel, and I know this from experience, you want to drop something in that you've learned in the world that really helped you out a lot. That's not what you need to do. You need to recognize you've been given exactly what you need in the Scriptures and use that to counsel that person. Now, is there room for a little bit of experience? Yes. Right? God gives us our experiences so that we can use them to help other people. But don't let that be the cornerstone of your teaching. Right? You've got the Word of God. It is perfect for this task. Use it. Use it first. Use it foremost. That is how we help each other that way. And when we understand that it is only because God opens our hearts to understand His Word and to apply it to our lives, we will humbly counsel others, understanding that we're not perfect either and that we need to be held accountable as well. So use the Word of God well. Because when we see that beautiful love of God lived out in His Son, we can't help but be thankful. When you read the words that talk about how gracious God is, our whole lives will be colored with the love and gratitude for Jesus. And we will, as a body, praise Him well together. And what number four? Glorify God together. Let's look at verse 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Douglas Moo in his commentary says, Everything, including what we say and what we do, shall be governed by the should be governed by the consideration of what it means to live in the realm of the risen Christ. Everything. Understand where you live. If you are one of his chosen, holy, and beloved, this is where you live. As a body of Christians, the right relationship with the Lord and with one another 
We must come alongside one another and spur one another on to live for Christ. We do so by recognizing each member of this body, and by extension those in other churches, are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, and treating one another accordingly. It's hard to live as we're called to live. We're not yet perfect, and we will disappoint, and we will offend one another. But you know what? God's Word tells us how to deal with that. Go back to the Word of God. Be true to the Word of God. Let us together do all that we do in word or deed to the glory of our Savior and by the power of the Holy Spirit and give thanks to God the Father for His great mercies through Jesus for he, this glorifies God and that is the final and ultimate why. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that your word is not just a list of things to do, short of how and why to do them. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us so much reason to be obedient to you. Lord, I pray that you will help us when we fail to do so, and we will fail to do so. But Lord, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you will enable us to be people who put on these characteristics and that love one another truly from the heart and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.